Welcome to the Security Matters podcast, where we bring you the latest news, views and opinion from across the UK's dedicated security business sector. My name is Brian Sims and I'm the editor of Security Matters magazine. We're delighted that this podcast is sponsored by the Security Event, which runs at the NEC in Birmingham on the 22nd and 23rd of September 2020. To register for the show, visit www.thesecurityevent.co.uk. One of the major news stories to surface this week focuses on research conducted by accountancy and business advisory firm BDO LLP. The company's latest advisory report suggests that the total value of fraud in the UK more than doubled in 2019 to reach a grand total of £1.7 billion. That's up from just over £746 million the previous year. The average value of fraud also increased, rising from £1.4 million to £3.6 million. BDO's analysis is based on reported fraud cases amounting to over £50,000 here in the UK. Despite the rise in the value of fraud, the number of reported cases has dropped by 12%, with 464 cases of fraud reported in 2019 compared with 525 the previous year. Not surprisingly, the forces are understood to be taking advantage of the COVID-19 outbreak, with mass home working and operational shifts towards e-commerce, now opening up new opportunities for criminals to target companies and individuals alike. The rise in value of fraud does suggest that sophisticated frauds are becoming increasingly predatory in nature. Compounding this, COVID-19 has provided a fertile breeding ground for fraudulent activity. Indeed, BDO is anticipating a spike in cases across this year. There are also regional hotspots to note. London and the South East remain the biggest hotspot for fraud in 2019 accounting for just under half of all reported fraud cases. The capital witnessed a 67% increase in cases last year, in fact, bringing the total value of fraud in this area to £794 million. That's up from £476 million in 2018. The North West took over from Yorkshire as the hotspot outside of London, with the value of fraud in the region almost 10 times bigger in 2019 than in the previous year growing from £52 million to be worth £500 million. The number of reported cases in the northwest actually remained the same. Fraud relating to the unauthorised or misuse of assets recorded the highest total value, rising from £115 million in 2018 to £671 million last year. The second highest value related to third-party fraud, which more than doubled in a year, bringing the total value of this type of criminality to just over £522 million. This is up from £181 million in 2018. A large number of these cases relate to employees or suppliers of businesses. Interestingly, cases relating to tax and cash fraud dropped in value by 13% and 9% respectively, bringing the total cost of fraudulent activity in these areas to £116 million and £29 million. So what does all of this mean? Well, we do know that as many as one in every five fraud events go unreported, with businesses often keen to avoid the reputational damage that fraudulent activity can bring. With third-party and employee fraud increasing in value, business leaders and individuals must remain more vigilant than ever. It's absolutely vital now to exercise a healthy level of scepticism and put in place robust controls and procedures designed to manage the risk of fraud, both internally and externally. Firms should focus on controls. They mustn't ignore any red flags in order to remain safe. They absolutely need to be competent enough to challenge the fraudsters in the way they did prior to this pandemic. Parliament is also heavily featured in the news this week. Following up on the previous Parliamentary Committee's partially completed inquiry into biosecurity that was conducted last year, and indeed the continued salience of such pandemic risks given the COVID-19 situation, the Joint Committee on the National Security Strategy is now determined to examine how biosecurity is addressed. 
That's in terms of both national security planning and indeed resilience implementation. The government's last strategic defence and security review back in 2015 categorised disease and particularly so pandemic influenza and emerging infectious diseases as a tier one or highest priority risk. In March 2018, the government's national security capability review elevated diseases and natural hazards affecting the UK to become one of six principal challenges likely to drive national security priorities over the coming decade. Pandemics and emerging infectious diseases have also been categorised as a top-tier risk in national security risk assessments. Indeed, the Joint Committee on the National Security Strategy will soon be briefed by the government on the latest of those assessments. The government itself published a biological security strategy back in July 2018, signed at the time by the Home Office, the Department for the Environment, Food and Rural Affairs and the Department of Health and Social Care. This was wholly intended to coordinate a cross-government approach towards biosecurity threats whether they materialise naturally, accidentally or deliberately. The arrival of COVID-19 presents something of a test case for that biosecurity strategy and indeed the risk assessment process in general, as well as for the UK's system of national security oversight and governance. The committee's inquiry will now take forward its earlier examination of biosecurity, including the written evidence it received for that inquiry from the government in September of last year. The Joint Committee is now calling for written evidence, in particular addressing the main drivers of biosecurity risk to human health here in the UK, including from pandemics and emerging infectious diseases, and how these risks are monitored and assessed by central government. There's also a stated desire to examine the extent to which the government has supported domestic preparedness against biosecurity risks. The focus here is primarily around building and measuring resilience, designing emergency response mechanisms, testing and exercising that response and also encompassing the lessons from exercises into active resilience planning. Also under the spotlight is the extent to which the government's planning for pandemics in the 2015 Strategic Defence and Security Review, the subsequent National Security Capability Review and also the 2018 Biosecurity Strategy actively helped in terms of guiding that preparedness. Further to this there is the issue regarding the oversight of such policy making and the management of biosecurity risk within overall national security risks themselves. There's a feeling that the roles and responsibilities of the National Security Council, relevant government departments and agencies and how their work is coordinated with that of the devolved administrations must actively be reviewed. In times hence, the Joint Committee intends to examine progress on the government's integrated security, defence and foreign policy review, including how well it's addressing different tiers of risks and encompassing risks such as pandemics. Another key area to be addressed is how efficiently the national security implications of COVID-19 are being absorbed in that review. Those practitioners who would like to share their views should note that submissions must be sent in by no later than Monday the 22nd of June. Access the Joint Select Committee's website for more details. Our first interviewee on this edition of the Security Matters podcast is Justin Crump, the CEO of London-based risk advisory firm Sibyline. Justin spent 17 years in the British Army before moving into the private sector, with his company recently winning the prestigious Queen's Award for Enterprise. I chatted with Justin about security representation at board level, the practice of contingency planning and how the security convergence agenda is panning out. First, though, we focus on the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic across the security business sector. Justin, thank you very much for joining us on this week's podcast. What's your view on how security trends are being affected by the COVID-19 pandemic? Put simply, Brian, um, we're looking at an acceleration, I think, of about uh, 10 years worth of security trends being pushed into as many weeks. Uh, certainly, my own team has been tracking security trends um, 
is a quantified risk model that we developed a number of years ago since 2015. And certainly we've seen just even in that model, um, an increase in trends of about twice as much uh, this year as we saw in the previous four years. And security trends were already kind of ticking upwards over that period. So we're seeing um, a real acceleration of things that were already in play. And as we're going through this at the moment, obviously, we've got ongoing incidents in the United States, driven by pre-existing conditions, but I think to some extent, uh, accelerated by the impacts of COVID uh, in a number of ways, obviously, overstretch of law enforcement in the first place, uh, you know, pressures on public services, redundancies, you know, in the sharp change in living for a number of people. And it, it's a cumulative effect of lots of small impacts, I think, seeing the acceleration of trends to the extent that we are. And of course, all of these issues are present in the world that we've been tracking for years. You know, the same flashpoints are here. I mean, this is the year we started by fearing that we'd be seeing a conflict in the Gulf, uh, you know, back in the very first week of January. And of course, we've now moved on to some of the biggest events in the United States, certainly since the late 60s. Um, and uh, that's just one example of where we're seeing all these trends be accelerated. And, and you know, very, very few good trends being accelerated other than maybe work from home, you know, autonomy um, and things like that. But of course, they come with um, particular haves and have-nots. And I think the biggest thing of all is actually the stark divisions in society, particularly in Western society, that we're seeing as a result of everything that's happening. And further to that, Justin, what impact do you feel the pandemic's exerting on security practitioners themselves at the present time? Well, I mean, of course, we're not invulnerable to the circumstances that are impacting everyone. And it's extraordinary to some extent that uh, you might see companies at the moment losing security functions. But the reality just is that economics uh, dictate that companies are having to make cuts, especially if they're in industries where there's particular uh, restrictions on being able to operate, like obviously the travel industry, hospitality and things like that. You know, so it is probably no surprise that we're seeing retrenchment in those areas, and that's impacting a number of security practitioners. Now, also, of course, for some companies, this is an opportunity to to clean up um, shops slightly. So I think a number of us have always wanted in the security industry to be at the top table, and we want the board to be attention, uh, paying attention to what we're doing. And I think the problem with that, of course, is if the board pays attention to what you're doing and it turns out not to be what they would like, then you're very exposed. So I suspect a few people have fallen foul of the fact that when the pressure came on, they were found to be wanting. And I think in some cases, in particular, people perhaps weren't helping the board as much as they should have done, and maybe others stepped into that void in the business, or they stepped into that in the um, in the wider context, like a number of the management consultancies are getting very involved in post-COVID planning and recovery and security aspects. And we saw this a little bit with cyber, but we're seeing it very sharply around COVID as, as of course, they're struggling for relevance in the boardroom. And I think that's seen some other people be pushed further back. So the security practitioners that have been on the front foot have done have done well. I think the ones that were a little bit on the back foot, you know, maybe a little bit eking out the retirement or, you know, not taking a job as seriously as they might have done have been much more impacted. Now, of course, on top of that, there's you know, this huge workload in terms of even tracking travellers, tracking exposure, trying to track what this all means to business, dealing with a huge flood of information and data, and trying to refine that into something that can help decision making in the company, both on the way into this crisis and on the slow way out of it. Uh, and you know, you and I have discussed in the past, this is not going to be a quick uh, turnaround situation. So there's kind of a lasting burn now as people aren't going to just see this settle down, they get to go back to a steady uh, status of business. I think the stress is going to be on the security function for a long while yet. 
And one of the points you mentioned just there, uh, Justin, one of, over the years, there's been much discussion on the perceived need for security to be represented at boardroom level on a much wider scale than is presently the case. Do you think that's going to happen now? And if so, would it make a positive difference when it comes to business resilience, for example? Yeah, you know, and I think resilience is the key interesting word there. I mean, I'm seeing a move more towards almost a chief resilience officer in a way in terms of a function. And this cuts across um, some of the wider things we've been talking about um, along the lines of convergence and uh, the role of the CISO versus the CSO in businesses and so on. I think security probably is an outdated term and the, the functions that have done best are the ones that didn't view themselves really as security functions, pure and simple, but as uh, sustainability or resilience advisors to the business and really you know sustainability is resilience and that is security you can't have those things without each other um you know it can't be a secure business if it ceases to exist so uh, i think um that's a kind of evolution whether or not we accept that at face value that's driving where this is all going so um does that make a difference to business resilience absolutely yes i think if that function working well there is effective decision making support going to the board there is effective situational awareness um, and clear decisions can be made, then yes, I mean, that, that is great. But again, I think some people just didn't have the clout within the business to necessarily keep up um, and to be able to provide that information. And um, you know, the function was not sophisticated. It was maybe a little bit too focused on doors and windows, and it wasn't a business function. I think that's the key differentiator for me is the people who are you know, part of the business rather than ex-government people coming in. Um, you know, who are viewing this as a sort of interim part of their lives or just another posting. I think they're the ones that have made the real difference because they've really been able to speak to what the business has needed in this time of crisis. And, and that's a big sort of heart of resilience for me. So um, will there be more attention? Yes. Will security practitioners be the person the board's listening to for resilience? That remains to be seen. But I think the onus is on all of us to really become specialists much more in resilience than in just purely security. Uh, and the ability to kind of see and manage risk and opportunity across all spectrums of business opportunity. I think that's open to us now, but you are going to see a lot of big players pushing into that space from, for example, the big four and other consultancies, because I think they are seeing the space here. And again, we saw this with cyber in the past. You know, There is broad appetite to, to get on top of this, and it's therefore incumbent on us to get value into that space. And post-pandemic, Justin, how do you feel the practice of contingency planning will be affected going forward? I mean, I'd hope it will be taken more seriously because I think even at government level, I mean, this was an eminently predictable crisis, right? I mean, if you look at the UK alone, pandemic flu was one of the top right-hand security risks. The US was well aware of it. And yet it was one of those things that could always be put off. Um, certainly exercises I was involved with over the years there was a general feeling that a real pandemic was so difficult to counter that there was no point in really trying to prepare for it because no one no one could really deal with it. And it was just too much work. And there were other things that were closer imperatives to getting stuff done that needed to be engaged with. So um, that's a real important uh, factor for me, I think, as to how we'll see everything evolve um, as we go forward is actually people taking that threat seriously. You know, will we see effective preparation for uh, for pandemic? Will we see more imagination around the threats that could happen in the world? Will we see better scenario-based planning, more agile structures? I mean, I really hope so. And I really hope this might encourage people to exercise and test in advance and build resilient structures. My fear is that, of course, the as has already happened, the focus on 
the here and now and immediate profits and immediate returns means that you know thinking for the long term always gets pushed to the back of the queue and sort of again it was just too much to deal with two years ago now it's going to be too expensive to deal with and i think those sorts of changes are the things that um, you know we'll see evolve uh, as we go forwards and but i think encouraging that that desire to test and have contingency planning and be adaptive you know, it's a great opportunity to really embed that in organizations at this moment in time and i think therefore it's something that we have to work on you know, very thoroughly uh, you know as practitioners to make sure that the top table it takes that on board and uh, learns lessons at this moment in time and then those lessons endure and i think the parallel we have for this is in a way 2001 and 9-11 and that did wake up people for a long period of time and thinking more about risk but of course it dropped away and then the next crisis in 2008 was a purely financial one. And of course, that pulled the plug slightly on those initiatives because people just couldn't afford to do them or had other priorities for the money. We're now going to face a combined security crisis and financial crisis. And it will be very interesting to see, therefore, you know, how, it, how it plays out as a combination of the two things most of us will remember from our careers so far um, and, you know, and the various factors in play in that. In your experience, how is the security function being impacted across the world during the pandemic? Has it been a marked difference between the UK and the US, for example? Yeah, do you know, I think um, in the US in particular, actually, the security function stepped up very well. Um, so if you look at the International Security Management Association meeting in January in San Diego, for example, now that is a uh, an international um, uh membership association for CSOs, but you know, quite heavily US represented. Um, that had an entire session sort of dedicated to, to what was happening with COVID. And I think a lot of people came to that meeting slightly skeptical about whether this would really mount to anything or whether it'd be a repeat of the swine flu um, period when you know, companies were stockpiling Tamiflu and things like that, if you remember that about 10 years ago. Um, and I think they left that meeting feeling very convinced that actually there was something here to be concerned about and that the ramifications could be quite large, especially in the economic sphere, um, even if not directly in the health sphere. So that's, uh, I think that was very important in shaping the US response. And I think as a result, US companies were very proactive in getting people um, safely into work from home and often taking action well ahead of where the government was. I think in the UK, by contrast, um, the government line here was uh, a bit more relaxed anyway, which didn't help. I think it's now become quite apparent the government was scrambling to catch up, obviously focused on other things like Brexit and not really appreciating the severity of, of the impact and how quickly things could come up. And of course, you look back, you know, just a week or two before um, lockdown was being put in place. So we're still saying travel to Italy was fine, you know, maybe take precautions in northern Italy, but really that was just a few towns. You know, and at a point where, of course, the virus is spreading rapidly in the UK. And I did notice that UK CSOs are much more complacent in the US about things. I think some were planning to work from home, you know, in in June. Um, this sort of time frame is when they thought there might be restrictions. And sometimes that came from actually maybe being a little bit too close to the government and therefore taking that as uh, authoritative view. But to be fair, I think their boards were also viewing the same line. And it, it's very interesting. So I just found the US to be so much more proactive about the threat um, than the UK, I think driven purely by the national line and the advice people were getting so collectively. So I guess there's a lesson there about looking perhaps beyond the obvious. And just because one has the contacts within government, they're not always going to be right. You just, all that tells you is the government's view, not the correct view. Um, I think that did catch a few businesses on the, on the hoof, uh, frankly. 
Um, so I think it's all been very interesting. But the key thing from all of that was the fact that in a survey during the crisis, it showed that most people trusted the information they got from their employers above all else, beyond government, beyond the media. Uh, obviously, with forgiveness to yourself, Brian, I'm sure that the readers of your own journal would disagree completely. But, um, you know, accepting that, it was the fact that employers were the trusted source. And to a large extent, again, that spoke to the handling of things by um, the security functions. Um, that was a US survey, uh, but I think the results were replicated elsewhere. Now, of course, as we come out of uh, the first wave of this crisis, then I think that same thing is going to imply that employers will be trusted. But of course, there is a high degree of scrutiny in how we handle the exit stage. And I think security functions will be very carefully judged during that as well. And of course, particularly tested by the arrangements that will have to be in place and this sort of assurance um, of goodwill on behalf of employees and um, you know that trusted relationship between the company and its workforce. You know, security and resilience are going to have a very big part to play in that. Um, and that's going to be the same whichever side of the Atlantic you're on. But obviously, the US side is already seeing some pretty horrid challenges uh, to domestic security. Um, you know, we thankfully we're not seeing in the UK yet. But I mean, this is not going to be the last outbreak of this sort of this sort of trouble in countries as a result of what's going on at the moment. I mean, bringing the interview to a close, Justin, how do you see the much talked about security convergence agenda developing in times hence? Uh, yeah, we sort of touched on this already, and I think I think it's inevitable, but. It's sort of the, the wheel just keeps turning, really, doesn't it? I mean, you can combine um, security again, but there's always going to be that requirement to understand the different functions within where security sits. And of course, once upon a time, security just meant security in the physical sense. We then had this sort of second offshoot of uh, IT security, effectively. Um, but then you start drifting things like reputational management and wider parts of um, wider parts of security in the wider sense. And I think um, a friend of mine put it very well with the sustainability you know, is resilience. And that she came from that background. But I think it's true that actually, if one really takes the logic of the security function um, to the full extent, it is all about the resilience of the business and the sustainability of the existence of the business across a whole range of activities and threats. So um, to me, that's where it all ends up at the end of the day. I mean, in any business, ultimately, you can sort of break down responsibilities further and further, the larger it gets. But I mean, to me, that is the, the heart of where we should all be aspiring to um, as security professionals is the heart of that resilience and sustainability argument. Um, and ultimately, the head of that sort of function within the business is a natural evolution. Now, under that, you might therefore have heads who are cyber literate or heads who are physically focused or people focused on reputation. But for me, all of that sits together. I mean, I guess the key attribute is not whether one is cyber literate or physical literate, but it's whether or not one can turn all that into a business impact and manage the business function. And I think that's where physical security professionals sometimes handicap themselves um, by not wanting to engage necessarily with other parts of that universe, like the IT side, you know, like the uh, reputational side. And to some extent, perhaps that's a function of a lot of people in the industry coming out of government service quite late in life and bringing a wealth of experience, but also perhaps a slightly um, dissociated focus. And certainly the people I've seen being most successful in this crisis are people who've grown up as corporate security professionals. They've grown up and identify as business people, not ex-government people. Um, and they've been the ones who are most willing to kind of embrace and lead the function to me. Obviously, there are many exceptions, but if I was going to generalize that, that's the trend I've seen. And a number of those people have actually been recognised during the crisis with uh, promotion or increased responsibility 
um, to kind of cut through uh, existing divisions. So to me, it hasn't changed the trend. I think it's just made it, uh, as crises often do, more clear of how it's manifesting. And again, that's accelerated this in a number of companies. Um, but that, that single source, it's, no, it's not like the CISOs are going to win or the CSOs are going to win. I mean, ultimately, this was a physical virus, not a, uh, not a cyber virus, right, which is a bit refreshing after the last few years. But it's being able to bring all of that function together that counts. And the people who are the most willing and capable of doing that um, and able to therefore speak all of the languages under that responsibility, again, be that cyber, be that physical, they're the ones that, are, to me, are going to make it. Um, and rightly so, because they are the business leaders, and that's what businesses need. Also in the news headlines this week, the recently unveiled Counterterrorism and Sentencing Bill represents a major step forward for national security here in the UK. It actually marks the largest overhaul of terrorist sentencing and monitoring in decades. Terrorists now face a minimum of 14 years behind bars for serious offences, as well as tougher monitoring as the new bill enters the Houses of Parliament. The bill will end early release for terror offenders who receive extended determinate sentences where the maximum penalty was life, and now forces them to serve their whole term behind bars. It will also see the most dangerous offenders handed a minimum 14-year prison term and up to 25 years on licence. Importantly, the bill will also allow the courts to consider if any serious offence is terror-related, for example, an offence involving firearms where there's a proven terrorist connection, and allow tougher sentences to be imposed. This would rule out any possibility of a serious terror offender being released automatically before the end of their sentence. In terms of the other key measures outlined in the bill, there will be an increase in the maximum penalty for a number of terror offences, including membership of prescribed organisations. The bill ensures a minimum period of 12 months on licence for all terror offenders, as well as requiring adult offenders to take polygraph tests. Further, the bill widens the list of offences that can be classed as terror-related, in order to absolutely ensure they carry tougher sentences. For their part, security practitioners will be keen to learn that the bill increases the monitoring and disruption tools available to the security services, and indeed counter-terrorism policing, by strengthening terrorism prevention and investigation measures, and also by dint of supporting the use of serious crime prevention orders in terrorism-related cases. The bill actually follows on from emergency legislation passed back in February, which ended automatic early release for terrorist offenders serving standard determinate sentences. This forced them to spend a minimum two-thirds of their term behind bars before being considered for release by the parole board. It also builds on recent government action designed to bolster the country's response to terrorism and ensure the UK has in place some of the strongest measures in the world to tackle the threat. That action includes counter-terrorism police funding being increased by £90 million for 2020-21, and a detailed and thorough review of support for the victims of terrorism, including immediate £500,000 for the victims of terrorism units. We would all agree that terrorists and their hateful ideologies have absolutely no place on our streets. Terrorists can now expect to go to prison for longer and face tougher controls on release. From introducing a 14-year minimum for the most dangerous offenders, through to putting in place stricter monitoring measures, central government is pursuing every option available to tackle the threat and, ultimately, keep our communities safe. Very much in the news during the COVID-19 pandemic has been the subject of cybercrime. Cybercriminals, it seems, are evolving their particular craft with new innovations and also starting to automate their attacks on a grand scale. In fact, this is one of the key findings of the 2020 Global Threat Intelligence Report just issued by NTT and featured in the news section on the Security Matters website. Manufacturing has become the most attacked sector in the UK, 
accounting for almost a third of all attacks, while the technology industry was the most attacked sector from a global perspective. Offering a detailed view of the threats impacting businesses, as well as emerging trends across different industries, the Global Threat Intelligence Report reveals that threat actors are innovating faster now than ever before. Developing multifunction attack tools and using artificial intelligence and machine learning capabilities, today's attackers are investing heavily in automation techniques. Despite efforts to layer up the defences, many organisations are unable to stay ahead of the attackers, while others are simply struggling to do the basics. Manufacturing regularly appears as one of the most attacked industries on the global stage. With cybercrime in this domain most commonly linked to intellectual property theft, the sector faces the ongoing threat of financially motivated data breaches, as well as global supply chain risks. This year, the UK was the only country where manufacturing topped the list. At 19%, technology is second, with business and professional services coming in third. Government and finance make up the other two sectors in the top five. Reconnaissance attacks accounted for 50% of all hostile activity in the UK and Ireland, with web application the next most common form of attack. Reconnaissance activity was also the most common attack type perpetrated against manufacturers, followed by web application attacks. As a sector, UK manufacturing has become a major target for the cyber criminals in recent years, as a direct result of the increased risk brought about from the convergence of IT and operational technology. The biggest worry here is that security has lagged behind in this sector, potentially exposing systems and processes to attack. Poor operational technology security is a legacy issue, of course. The plain fact here is that many systems were designed with efficiency, throughput and regulatory compliance in mind, as opposed to security. In the past, operational technology also relied on a form of security through obscurity. The protocols, formats and interfaces in these systems were often complex and proprietary and different from those in IT systems, so it was very difficult for attackers to mount a successful raid. As more and more systems come online, though, the hackers are innovating and now see these systems as being ripe for compromise. On that basis, it's absolutely critical for all organisations, regardless of their sector or region, to pay keen attention to the security that enables their business. They must make sure they're cyber resilient and also secure by design. In essence, this means embedding privacy and security into the fabric of their enterprise architecture and their organisational culture. Our final interviewee on this episode of the Security Matters podcast is Nick Smith. Nick is Regional Sales Manager at Genetech, the IP Surveillance and Access Control Specialist, and has served in this role since April 2017. Having also worked for Bosch, iComply and Mobotics, Nick is a vastly experienced and technical sales professional, skilled in several areas including software solutions, databases, video surveillance and intruder detection. Earlier this week I chatted with Nick about the role of technology when it comes to easing the lockdown and establishing the new normal. Thank you very much for joining us on this week's podcast, Nick. I wanted to first ask you about technology. There's lots of it about in our sector just now, and thermal cameras and video analytics in particular are being touted as the answer for a safe return to work. What advice would you give to installers and end users alike who are currently evaluating these particular solutions? Yeah, Brian, I mean, like you said, there's a lot of technology about at the moment. I think, you know, system integrators, end users, they're being overwhelmed with the amount of technology and people obviously plug in their solutions, specifically around the COVID pandemic. 
what, what we're seeing though is is specifically if we look at thermal technologies you know there's been a lot of noise around using thermal technologies for screening of people for potentially detecting high temperatures uh, or, or not normal temperatures exceptions but I think the key bit is you know that the advice I could give is is really to to think about what it is you want to do and and why you want to do it and what you want to achieve because ultimately that's going to help you identify the most appropriate technology you know we can put technology in uh, you know at a last minute or because we feel we, we, we really need to because uh, the marketing's so good and it shows that maybe we can do something with this technology but what, what we're finding is people aren't really thinking about the wise uh, but but more importantly what are they going to do so if i do have an exception and i use this technology and it detects something what do i do then and that's really the key bit you know really think about why you want the technology what you want it to achieve and then the important bit is what's the process you know what's the process and the procedure behind it what process have you put in place to ensure that you know, if, if you do have an exception that, that it's going to be managed and, and the, it's going to follow uh, the organisational policy as far as kind of what you do off the back of that. And many people are nervous about the long term privacy implications of the technologies currently being introduced. Nick, as a business, what's Genentech doing to address these concerns at the moment? So, so Genentech have always taken uh, both cybersecurity and, and, and privacy uh, extremely seriously. It's one of the one of the key pillars of, of, of Genentech and the way we develop our software. So, I mean, the, the Genentech Security Center platform has is is has been developed with privacy by design. You know, we encrypt all the data um, as, as much of the data as we can, whether it's at rest or in transit. Uh, we ensure mechanisms are in place to restrict access to um, only to users who who have uh, a reason to use that data and and we we also can implement tools like privacy protection uh, which allows us to redact live images to protect the privacy of those people but again ultimately it really comes down to the processes and procedures it's about identifying and, and making sure process details that somebody's going to have access why they're going to have access and the ability to then uh, log that access to make sure that you know, should there be a data breach of any type, you know, we can only put a certain amount of tools in that we can at least identify that we've put all the mechanisms in place uh, to prevent that, that we can audit it to, to detect who it was. Um, and one of the new features that we we just brought into our latest uh, platform, uh, our latest version is cycle watermarking. Now, I think the traditional sense of watermarking is what we now call digital certification as far as ensuring the integrity of the video is not compromised when provided to police. But we, we've now created something called watermarking where we actually watermark the video both on live and recorded so that let's say um, uh, an operator or a third party decides they want to record that footage directly with a mobile device and put it on the internet. We can define which user was logged in and which workstation that came from. So, you know, we build a huge amount of tools into the platform to to ensure that uh, both the, the data is protected um, and the pri privacy is um, is, is protected. It is key to know, though, it, you know, the, the, if we are looking at video, we also need to consider consider the, the cameras um, to ensure that they're encrypting the data, because ultimately we can't control what comes out of the cameras. We control what hits uh, a Genentech service. So so again, just make sure that the, the, the manufacturer of the cameras is taking privacy and security seriously. Now, mentioning cameras, Nelly, can you give us some examples of how Genetech's customers are presently using video surveillance to respond to the operational challenges, and many of them uh, triggered by COVID-19? Yeah, I mean, there's some out-there solutions 
<laughs> coming out now. So people are, I think in, in periods like this, people really kind of have time to think and work out how they can get the most out of systems or come up with new solutions. So obviously, we, I think we've all seen kind of thermal uh, being at the forefront of this. I think pretty much every camera manufacturer is pushing thermal as a, a, a potential solution for this. So that's that's obviously detecting elevated body temperatures. There there are pros and cons to that and there are pitfalls. I think with like anything like this, you know, treat them as a tool. But we're also seeing, you know, heavy use of analytics. And we typically have our own analytics, but we work with edge-based analytics. And we also work with third parties, uh, technology partners and, and their analytic platforms. So again, things like social distancing, you know, using analytics to be able to understand whether, you know, uh, people are social distancing, measuring distances between them. But the main one we're really seeing is occupancy management, especially where we're looking at retailers, et cetera, get, trying to get back to normality, trying to at least open their doors so they can start trading again. And again, it's using things like people counting um, and not just on video. You know, you can use access control for this, but you can also use LiDAR technology. We support a, a product from a company called Quanogy. But it's about being able to count people coming in and out of your facility. But most importantly, then having the platform to be able to define limits, because ultimately we know that uh, a certain amount of people are going to make uh, social distancing difficult. So it's about keeping track of who's coming in and coming out and then off the back of that, if we reach occupancy limits, how do we manage that? Um, and again, I'm coming back to the first first point we talked about, which is kind of, you know, we have this technology, um, we can do these things. But ultimately, what are you going to do when you get to that point? What is your policy? What is your procedure? And with occupancy management, um, we have an occupancy management package, which we developed over the, the this, this, this COVID uh, pandemic. That allows us to monitor in real time um, who's in the store or who's in the facility. And the system can then automatically do something off the back of that, whether it be notify certain people, present an operator with some standing operating procedures to tell them what they need to do next, lock doors, you know, pretty much do whatever you need it to do off the back of it. But I will keep going back. There is lots and lots of technology that can do some very, very clever things. Treat them as a tool. Don't, they, you know, they're not gospel that none of these technologies are 100% effective. But the most important thing is think about why you want to use it. And ultimately, what are you going to do when you get to a point where the system is telling you that it's um, that it's met the criteria that you, you've specified from, from uh, detecting something? Sticking with the COVID-19 theme for a second, Danik, in terms of us easing us all out of the lockdown, what about access control? How is this type of security technology being used at the moment? So, so access control is a little bit more uh, reactive more than proactive. But I think that actually access control itself can provide um, some very, very valuable information. Um, so over the over the last period, again, you know, based on customers' um, demands, um, and we're very customer driven at Genotech, we've developed a couple of reports, just very, very simple reports that, that assist with being able to specifically um, detect, or sorry, notify people uh, about a potential um, risk to them. So if we take, we brought in something called a proximity report, and it's quite simple in the way it works. You know, I, I've come into work or, or I'm, I'm at home today and I've phoned my work to say, you know, I've, I've got an elevated temperature. Um, I'm not feeling too well. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm just unwell. So, so what you could do as an organisation is then using the, the periodic, uh, sorry, the proximity report, I can define which doors or which areas I've gone through. And this report will then tell me who, which other persons within or people within the organisation have been in proximity, close proximity to me during those periods where I, I, I was going through those doors. 
that then gives me the ability to, or rather the organisation, the ability to, to, to notify those people who are in close proximity that they have been in close contact with somebody who, who could potentially have COVID, but, um, you know, somebody who's self-isolating and allow them to, to take action off the back of that uh, to, to, to self-isolate themselves. So it's not necessarily about being able to proactively detect something, but more about being able to inform people that they may be at risk and then manage the situation to ensure that that doesn't, um, that doesn't spread within the organisation. Another solution that we brought in is something called a periodic access solution. And this allows us to define, say, a temporary period, let's say seven or 14 days. So that again, if I if I am ill um, and I'm I'm expected to self quarantine, the organisation can set a flag on my record to say that um, you know I've, I've, I'm showing symptoms or I'm not very well, and that will automatically tell the access control system to uh, suspend access for me for for a period of time, um, whatever we've defined, to ensure that I don't get access to the building or at least um, I'm noted that the, the, the organisation's notified if I try to get access to the building. And then on the back of that, when I come to return to work. You know, and I, I, I swipe my card on the, my first day. That could then notify somebody that I'm coming back to work. It could run a procedure and we could pre- present operators or security with some operating procedures that show them what they now need to do. And that may, may, may be just to take me to one side and have a chat and just make sure, you know, do the checks and balances before I enter the site to make sure that everything's okay. So they're two very, very, um, I'm not going to say simple. I'm not a developer, you know, but as a salesperson, we say everything's easy when it's development work. But ultimately, you know, development is difficult. Um, it's complicated. But these are two quick um, features that we've included over this period that, that that really assist in being able to to improve the quality of the working the working environment by being able to at least to some extent trace and track people off the back of uh, somebody showing symptoms or somebody not being very well. We, there are actually other technologies that we're, we're working heavily on at the moment that, that don't rely necessarily on, on video or access control because obviously with, from a video perspective we've got to use analytics but it's only going to be it's only really going to work in areas where you've got camera coverage um, and same with access control you know we're only going to be able to really log anybody where we've got a reader. So you know, if we look at other technologies, say wireless technology, specifically uh, what we call real-time location services using Bluetooth beacons, you know, the deployment of these can actually really enhance the track and trace uh, of, uh, functionality and, and ability to be able to find people. And because ultimately, it's if, if everybody's carrying a beacon, which transmits where your position is, and I'm not talking about sending personal data, ultimately, it's like access control, it just sends a number up to the service. But it means we can track every single person who holds a, a Bluetooth beacon within a facility in real time. So that means, again, if we do detect somebody or we are notified about somebody who's showing symptoms, we then have the ability to know who's been in close proximity to that person within the whole building or the whole organisation where, where obviously they've, they've got real-time location services deployed. And then we could automatically notify those people uh, via their mobile devices, a little bit like, I suppose, what the government uh, 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 piloted in, in the Isle of Wight. So um, notifying those 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 people who have been in close proximity automatically to say, you know, just be aware you have been in close proximity with somebody who's been diagnosed or shown symptoms and therefore, you know, self-isolate. So we are seeing a lot of um, a lot of technologies now coming into play. Um, like I said, they all, you know, none of them are 100%, even the beacons, which work very, very well. But ultimately, if I don't have my beacon on me, if it's switched off, I'm not going to be tracked. But like with all of these technologies, we just to bear in mind, um, you know, what the limitations are but, uh, and then implement them and, and, and use them accordingly. 
And one one of the I'd like to address is this one, Nick. Uh, Genentech as a business has always advocated the philosophy of unification over standalone systems. From your own point of view, what are the overriding benefits of this approach and how easy is it to achieve in the real world? So, so the real benefit is, I mean, where we've got siloed systems, uh, siloed access control, siloed CCTV, siloed um, AMPR systems, um, anything that where you've got siloed systems, uh, ultimately it's it's difficult to then uh, combine that data and, and track that data over multiple different sources. Ultimately, I'm having to go to one data source, run the report there, go to another data source, run the report there and try and uh, correlate all of this information. Through a unified platform, because all of those data sources are all within the same database and because the source the the, the the code the source code has been developed um, so that all of these different disciplines of security are entwined it makes it extremely uh, easy efficient uh, to provide to, to, to generate and, and produce effective reports where we maybe if we need to do something based on an access control event a card holder um, not only we can bring in uh, associated events or any events from a card, uh, an access control perspective for that person, but we can also automatically, that will also automatically tag video, plus any other events that may be related to that particular person or people related to that people who've been in close proximity. Things like, um, you know, uh, analytics events, um, even that building management system event. So it's all about the efficiency. It's much more efficient to have that single unified system. It's also much more cost effective because we're not having to maintain and, and run three to four different systems. So, you know, there's, there's benefits all the way through. The reality is, I think a unified platform is always a lot, there's less resistance where we've got a greenfield site because ultimately, you know, there's no existing system uh, there, especially when we take a look at uh, access control, because ultimately out of all the security disciplines, I'd say that access control is probably the, 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 the one that's um, where the cost of change is highest, uh, specifically where there's there's a proprietary uh, access control system. Because if you want to change, you've got to change all the all the bolts. If you've got four to five hundred doors, that's that's a lot of access control hardware. So that's probably where it's more difficult. Where we see it's more difficult to to implement a unified platform. But at the same time, because we have integration to those third party, you know, those, those proprietary access control systems, then, then we can bring them in. And then it's down to the customer uh, whether they want to migrate away from that and unify the system or whether they're quite happy to keep it as, as, as two or three maybe integrated systems. Um, but there are some real there are some real benefits, some, some operational benefits, some situational awareness benefits, as well as the cost benefits to, to going down a unified platform. brings us to the end of this latest edition of the Security Matters podcast. Many thanks indeed to Justin Crump and Nick Smith, their valued contributions, and also grateful thanks to our sponsors, The Security Event. The Security Event runs at the NEC in Birmingham on the 22nd and 23rd of September 2020. To register for the show, visit www.thesecurityevent.co.uk. Don't forget to visit our website at www.fsmatters.com forward slash security hyphen matters where you can view our podcast and also read the latest industry news and opinion, as well as access our dedicated features content. Please do contact us if there are any key themes or issues you would like us to explore on upcoming broadcasts. You can do so on Twitter by using the hashtag SecurityPod. On that note, make sure you follow us on Twitter at WBMSecMatters. As a reminder, the Security Matters podcast is live to view every fortnight on Wednesdays. Please do like and share the content and spread the word among your industry colleagues. 
You can listen to the Security Matters podcast for free on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube or Podbean. To download the podcast on iTunes or Spotify, all you need to do is enter the term Security Matters into the platform search box. We'll see you next time.